0: St. Louis teams have been affected by coronavirus, even after coronavirus is gone. Good morning to you. Good Friday morning from St. Louis. I'm Dan Kovacevic of DK Pittsburgh Sports and the newly reborn DK Sports Radio Podcasting Network. And if that wasn't an unusual enough intro to draw you into this opening segment, I'm not sure how much better I can do. Uh, there's strange things happening in this city whenever the local baseball team is booting the ball. And the reason that I came out here, obviously, was the Pirates and Cardinals playing a makeup doubleheader yesterday and into last night at Bush Stadium. The Pirates swept that doubleheader, much to their credit. 4-3 to three in game one. That one went eight innings, even though these are supposed to be seven-inning games. And then 2 nothing in the nightcap. Chad Cool pitched real well in the opener. Cody Ponce got his first big league W after that. And then Nick Turley got his first big league save. They had a big beer shower in the clubhouse. Same clubhouse, by the way, where they were pelting Derek Shelton with beer for his first win. I was out here for that one as well. So this place has actually been good to the Pirates this year, which is a little strange. It has not been good to the Cardinals, and it certainly wasn't yesterday. Now, look, the last thing I'm going to do is start taking credit away from a team that's 9-19, nine and 19, as the Pirates are right now, and say that the other team handed them the game. But, but the Cardinals did some strange things out on the field, which normally I wouldn't think much of at all. Uh, everybody will occasionally boot the ball, they'll allow one to slip under the glove, they'll fumble one, they'll throw to the wrong base. The Cardinals do it a whole lot less than everyone else, but I still wouldn't have thought that much of it, except that I kept hearing from people here, including people in the know at Bush Stadium, that there's something off about this team, there's something weird. They look tired, they look fatigued, they look off, now, you'll remember that in addition to the Miami Marlins, the Cardinals were the other team that came down with a collective case of coronavirus and needed to be shut down. Theirs lasted for 17 days. And when it ended, when they were cleared to return to play, they were given a schedule that has them playing 53 games in a 45-day span, including 11 doubleheaders. So this was one of those 11 doubleheaders. Still, still, that in and of itself wouldn't be significant, except that they look weird and people are talking about them funny. And last night here, Mike Schilt, the manager, was asked pointedly about the team looking off or looking tired. I am telling you, 99 times out of 100, a manager or a coach in any sport will say, no, 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 there's nothing like that. Uh, They hate having even the concept of fatigue entered into their environment. The thinking is that it makes the athlete feel unduly tired or even lazy. Schilt had no problem with it. Schilt was, yeah, I I think there's some of that there. He's a real, real straight shooter, but still, right? Now, no one asked, again, because you really can't anyway, because no one can give you an answer because of the privacy that's involved, but if anybody's still feeling any kind of effects, any of the dozen or so cardinals that were afflicted with this, However, in this city more than any other, they're going to think about it. They'd absolutely think about it. And the reason is the hockey team that's right down the street. The St. Louis Blues, of course, were the 2019 Stanley Cup champions. And although it's very difficult to repeat, they were given at least a pretty good chance of doing so, not just because the Penguins became the first post-cap team to pull it off in 2016 and 2017, but because they had this weirdly long break thanks to the coronavirus shutdown that even gave time for Vladimir Tarasenko, their best player, to heal up from what had been expected to be a long absence due to a shoulder surgery. So everything looked like it was going to be in line for the Blues. And then they came down with coronavirus. This had nothing to do with the Cardinals, by the way, the timing on these two things. It just, this is total coincidence, right? But stay with me here. So the Blues go up to Edmonton to begin participating in the bubble. They play in that round-robin tournament, and they lose to the Vegas Golden Knights. So they lose their top seeding right off the bat. Something's off. They had to shut down, before going up to the bubble, their practices for a bit when some of their players, they didn't let out the number at the time, had come down with coronavirus or tested positive, whether or not they were symptomatic or not wasn't released at the time. They go to Edmonton and they, they get wiped out by Vegas in terms of seeding. And then they play the Vancouver Canucks, a team that, I mean, last year's Blues would have just destroyed this year's Canucks. I, I, I have no other way of putting that. The Canucks played well, but the, something was off with the Blues, just like something's off with the Cardinals. So the Blues get eliminated by Vancouver. And they come back here to St. Louis, and Doug Armstrong the team's GM, is doing his end-of-the-season interviews the same way that Jim Rutherford always does them and did them again this year in Pittsburgh after the Penguins were eliminated. And it's one of those sessions where there's a whole lot of candor, things that they're not allowed to say for a bunch of reasons, whether it's hockey or other uh, possible things. They just can't talk about them. Well, Armstrong talked about everything. He didn't give names as it was related to coronavirus, but he estimated that 20% of the team had actually tested positive for it. And then he started getting into the specifics of the symptoms. Players lost weight. Players were nervous. Uh, Players, four of whom had wives who were pregnant or very young children, became... Anxious, worried. They were thinking about things other than hockey, which is, you know, that's human. That's not a criticism. That's how that goes. Armstrong said he felt that once the team got to Edmonton that they were kind of okay because now they were in the bubble. They didn't have to worry about the logistics as much, and the family's not immediately around them to feel like a constant concern. But by that point, it didn't matter. They hadn't had the proper mental buildup, physical buildup, anything, and they were dismissed. My point to all of this is when we're talking about coronavirus and we're talking about the tests, there's more to it than just whether or not someone tests positive, and then they have the 14, 15-day mandatory time off, and then they test negative, and then they're right back out there. Don't presume, based on what we're seeing here in St. Louis, that that comes with zero effect. The example that I can cite from the Pittsburgh standpoint, and again, this is with no specific knowledge of anything, but just a supposition on my part, is Gregory Polanco from the Pirates. He, of course, tested positive, Uh, Because he smartly alerted the Pirates that he wasn't feeling right, and he didn't even go into PNC Park to make sure that he didn't risk infecting anybody else. A test was done. He tested positive. He was shut down. And then he came back into the season, and you saw it. You know? He was awful. I mean, he was awful again here yesterday in the doubleheader. Is that just Polanco being crazily inconsistent like he's been his whole career or did it affect him I don't know I don't know he might not know the Pirates medical people might not know I might be talking completely out of turn here all I'm saying is that I think we should all myself included be mindful of the fact that this virus is still in its first full go-round it hasn't even had a year's cycle yet we don't know what it does what it doesn't do what kind of after effects there are we've read about them some of them are scary some of them might not be true some of them might be we just don't know so let's not presume that as soon as somebody tests negative that everything is just a-okay when we come back coronavirus's effect on Heinsfield. back, there will not be any fans watching football games at Heinz Field through the end of September. That was made known separately by the Steelers and by the University of Pittsburgh. But I'm sure it was jointly done in a way in the sense that both parties had to be dealing with the Pennsylvania Department of Health to get guidance on what they could or couldn't do. And it, it's disappointing. It, it's at least a little bit disappointing. And again, I'm not going to play amateur epidemiologist. I think that's how you pronounce it. For as many times as we've all read that word <laughs> in the last five months, we should all be able to nail that, right? Epidemiologist. I'm not one of those, regardless of how it's pronounced. So I'm not going to speculate as to what's right or wrong in terms of conducting a significant sporting event or significant mass gathering. However, what you're going to see here in the days and the weeks to come is that there are teams that are based in states that are going to have governments that are going to be a lot less Uh, restrictive, cautious about it. The Miami Dolphins have already said they're going to have 15,000 people in their place, which holds 70, so you'd still be scattered pretty good. Is that safe? I don't know. I mean, you're putting X number of people per square foot in a giant eagle. You're putting X number of people per square foot in a lot of other different settings. If you spread 5,000, 10,000 people out over a massive stadium, you could make a pretty solid argument that you're doing okay. But then the comeback to that is it's not just about seating. It's also about the eating areas, the concourses, the restrooms, Uh, All the places that if if you've spent any time at all in airports, uh, and judging by my experience in airports over the past couple of months, not a lot of you have, (laughs) because there's nobody flying. (laughs) But if you have, you'll know that the, the awareness isn't just about the plane itself. The awareness is of the entire airport structure and where people are eating and how they're standing in line and how they pass through security and how they board the plane, all of that would have to be in place and done in a measured and cautious way to get football fans back into stadiums in any kind of meaningful number. And then from there, the next question that I have is, what is a number that makes a difference? Let's say, for example... The state says, all right, Steelers and Eagles, you two Pennsylvania teams, you get to bring, let's just make something up here, 7,000 fans into your stadiums. You bring 7,000 fans in, what are you doing with them? Like, you'd have to spread them out all over the place. And as anybody can attest, been to a sporting event that sparsely attended – the more spread out the fans, the less likely they are to make any kind of noise, let alone some sort of collective sound. It's just a bunch of people sitting back. It's very, very different. I had somebody mention to me recently, well, what about you know the way they play the high school football games over at Hines Field, meaning the championships for the... City League and for the WPIL. I said, that's completely different because they shove all the fans down into the lower bowl so they don't have to clean the upper bowl. So everybody's down there in a tight area so they feel more together and louder and more supportive of their boys and everything else. It's not a comparable situation to having people spread out. The Kansas City Chiefs had a practice last week uh, at Arrowhead, another just a colossal stadium, and they had, I believe the number was 500 people there. There was an aerial shot of this crowd. I mean, it was funny. I mean, it was funny. I mean, these people were spread out all over the place. Does it look safe? Yeah, you bet. But to what end are you bringing them in at all? What's the point here? Can the league or leagues, anybody that wants to try something like this, do something like charge, I don't know, $2,500 for a ticket if they're only selling 500 tickets. Would that be something that causes a lot of people to be upset? I would imagine that it does. Imagine if you're a chief season ticket holder going all the way back to Len Dawson and... You've been in your same seat forever, but now the pandemic comes and Joe Rich Guy buys your seat at $2,500 a pop, that you couldn't come close to affording, and the Chiefs don't care. Bad, bad, bad look, bad vibes, bad everything. So... To what end are you going partial, and what constitutes a fair number that's partial, or a fair price for those that are partial? This stuff just drives you nuts. The more the more you think about it, and I can't imagine what these administrators, including those in the Steelers offices and Heather-like in the pit offices, are going through to try to figure out what's the right way to do this still try to get some revenue, any revenue, is better than zero. When we come back, something a little bit happier as it relates to football. Actually, a lot happier. Stay tuned for this one. Welcome back. Lots of morbidity and coronavirus and everything else in the first two segments. I'll try to chipper it up here. in third. That seems to be the pattern of late, if you noticed. And then, in addition to that, the pattern follows through that it's something about the Steelers. the Steelers, they haven't played a game yet. They haven't done anything wrong. Everything is great. You know, everybody's healthy. Everybody's looking vibrant in the footage that you see. Everybody's talking all energetic. It's great. Everything's happy. So, on that note, On that note, add Ben Roethlisberger's name to the growing all-capital-letter list that comprises the Chase Claypool Fan Club. My goodness, everybody loves Claypool. And I get it. I've seen him. I've been over at Heinz Field. This kid does things physically that other wide receivers can't do. That was part of what made him so attractive, particularly at the scouting combine last February in Indianapolis. It wasn't just about uh, his speed for his size, which is the thing that you notice the most. It's his ability to use that speed and size, but also his extraordinary body control to angle to position himself, to contort toward the football and to come down with it and to come down with it in a balanced and set way that he can continue the play and pick up yards after the catch. They've tried to avoid Megatron comparisons, and they should. There's one Calvin Johnson. I don't know that we're going to see another one of those for a while. But when you're comparing styles and similarities, it's a lot like the way... I know I hedge whenever I compare Deontay Johnson to Antonio Brown because immediately it sounds not just absurd but unfair to the kid. But you're talking about styles. You're talking about the method. You're talking about the way that they go about doing things that makes them effective. Whether or not they can do it consistently over... Uh, a long period of time, the way Megatron did, the way AB did, that's that's a completely different discussion and should be. But Ben, he loves Chase. Here's what Ben had to say yesterday.
1: Well, I I always get caught trying to spread too much praise to rookies because I want them to sneak up on other people. But it doesn't look like um, Chase is going to be able to sneak up on anybody right now because people are talking about him and, and deservedly so. Um, he's just making plays. Um, I think. The plays that he's making are impressive, but I think to me, the more impressive is that he doesn't ask a lot of questions, uh, which means he knows his stuff. I, I can change a play with a hand signal or, um, or or call a different play at the line of scrimmage, and he. I always check him, like, are you good? And he's like, I, I got it. And so I, I think that is is just very, very impressive from a quarterback perspective that – uh, as much as we've thrown at him, um, he's able to digest it. And i not saying he doesn't make a mistake, but when he makes a mistake, it's not he's not making the same mistake twice. And so I just think that's really impressive.
0: Every indication that we've gotten from the Steelers, including on the record, is that they'd love to get this kid involved in the offense. Uh, it doesn't have to be every snap. It almost certainly can't be every snap, barring a significant injury somewhere. But if he can get onto the field in certain sets, if they can have a handful of plays that are scripted for him, that won't force him to learn too extensively about a specific opponent or a specific alignment or reading a certain situation, give him a handful of plays and tell him to ace him. That's it. Get him out there on the field, get him involved especially in the red zone. This is where this stuff gets fun because the two players who were acquired through different means for the Steelers' offense of the greatest prominence were Claypool, of course, as the top pick, although he was a second rounder, and Eric Ebron, the big tight end. Both of them have one thing in common principally other than being really big dudes who can catch the football, and that is that they're especially adept at that in the red zone. The Steelers had many problems offensively in 2019. Number one with a bullet was the red zone offense. Now, anyone can go ahead and pin that on Mason and Duck into oblivion, and they'll probably be right. But a problem is a problem until it isn't one. And for Ben to have targets like that, and you remember in the past what he's done with Heath Miller as a target in the red zone. For him to have more than one option like that, the mind starts racing. And it doesn't necessarily even start racing all in, in happy directions. You also start wondering about how this kid's going to get on the field of who he's going to shove off. Uh, is it going to be just in a four-receiver set? Uh, is there somebody that he can bump? Is there a different look that he can give? Do they have a, a red zone set? that they come out with, with guys that are just going to be great targets in the end zone. I don't know that, but man, is it going to be fun to watch. And we're not that far away. It's September 14th, Steelers versus Giants in East Rutherford, New Jersey. Can't wait to get there for that. Also, can't wait to get home from here in St. Louis for the weekend. Thank you so much for listening to this. We'll be back Monday.
1: Your front door. Your car. Your gym locker. Your gun. Safety is a habit. Learn more about how to keep guns safe and secure. Visit projectchildsafe.org.